محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي وللصواب الديني بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد. In our last lesson we talked about the beginning of the conquest of Mecca and we went into a lot of detail with the story of Hatib ibn Abi Balta. Hatib ibn Abi Balta. We derived so many benefits from that story. Now we return to our story where we had left off. The Prophet departed Mecca on what day? Quickly, this is review. What day did he depart Mecca? No, not today. You're getting confused with another battle. Which month? 10th of Ramadan. Ramadan. Conquest of Mecca is Ramadan. He arrived in Mecca on the 17th. He departed on the 10th, or actually on the 18th, 19th. He departed Mecca on the 10th of Ramadan in the 8th year of the Hijrah. And he leaves one of the Sahaba in charge. And this Sahabi is not one of the famous people because the fact of the matter is every famous Sahabi participated in the battle in the conquest of Mecca. But still, somebody has to manage the affairs of Medina. So we have a Sahabi whom we have never heard of before or even after this incident, Abu Rihim Kulthum ibn Hussein, which really shows us that the people People who were left in Medina were not of the major players. There might have been a legitimate reason for this person to be left in Medina. The fact of the matter is everybody of the major Sahaba participated in the conquest of Mecca. The Prophet as soon as he reached the area called Qudayd, and Qudayd is literally a, uh, just right outside of Medina. As soon as he reached Qudayd, he broke his fast because it's Ramadan, they're all fasting. So he broke his fast at this uh, place and the Sahaba broke their fast as well. And this shows us a very simple and important fiqh point, which is the uh, position of the vast majority of scholars. And that is, travel does not begin from within the city. You are not allowed to break your fast or shorten your prayer while you are still in the city. So if you are going to Timbuktu, you cannot shorten your salah in your house before you leave. If your flight set, uh, 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 let's say 3 p.m. let's say you cannot shorten your salah inside Memphis airport or wherever your airport is you cannot do Qasr because travel begins outside the city not inside the city similarly if you're it's Ramadan your flight is at 4 p.m. You are not allowed to break your fast and not fast that day knowing that you're gonna do suffer no you have to begin the suffer that day, uh, not suffer, the, the, the fast that day, and you must remain fasting until you board your plane and the plane departs from Memphis or wherever your city is and you are outside the city limits, then you may break the fast. Then you may start your uh, qasr uh, and your jama' of the salah. Uh, and this is clearly demonstrated in the seerah. They proceed onwards and they're barely two days out of Medina. They're barely, you know, they're still less than halfway. And they pass by the valley of Juhfa. And the valley of Juhfa uh, is mentioned in the seerah and other incidents. And lo and behold, they find coming from Mecca to Medina, none other than the uncle of the Prophet Al-Abbas with his wives and children. Al-Abbas is coming with his family as a muhajir. Abbas had no idea that... Because remember, this was top secret. Remember, Hatib's letter had been intercepted. Nobody knows that the conquest is taking place. And lo and behold, Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib comes to do hijrah. And Allah had written for him the honor, the sharaf, that nobody else got after him. And that is the last human being ever to enter into the realm of the muhajirun. And Allah Azza wa Jal gave it to him just barely because he didn't actually reach Medina. The Prophet had left and they meet not even halfway, maybe one-fourth or, or, or something of the way. Al-Abbas and his family comes and he announces his Islam and the Prophet rejoices immensely after all this is his uncle and he tells Abbas, go take care of your family and then join us quickly. Go back, settle down, 
check them into whatever place you have. You know, no doubt they would have assigned somebody, you know, get your wives and kids uh, settled in and then come and join us. We're going to conquer Mecca. And so Al-Abbas quickly does this and because he's a single rider, uh, when he drops his family off, he can catch up to the caravan, which is obviously proceeding at a much slower pace. Now very quickly, remind me, how many uncles of the Prophet play a role in the seerah? How many uncles of the Prophet play a role in the seerah? Give me a number. Three, four, four at least. I like this. Cautious. Iqbal is cautious. Hamza Abbas. Huh? Abdul Muttalib. Abu Talib. And Abu Lahab. Right? These are the four uncles that play a role in the seerah. Right? As for the other uncles, they are not alive. When the Da'wah phase begins, i.e. they all have passed away before the Prophet reaches the age of 40. There's only four uncles that live to see the Prophet preach Islam. Two of them die as non-Muslims, one of them the worst enemy and the other the best non-Muslim ever. And that's Abu Talib. Right? And this is the Sunnah of Allah, this is the Qadr of Allah. The two blood brothers, the one of them is the worst and the other is the best amongst the non-Muslims. And then of the two other brothers, Hamza and Al-Abbas, once again there is a bit of a disparity because Hamza converts in the middle Meccan phase and Hamza becomes Sayyidu Shuhada. So he reaches the highest rank. And then Abbas, Allah blesses him to be the very last Muhajir. The very last, after this there is no Hijrah. لا هجرة بعد الفتح There's a famous hadith mutawatir. There is no hijrah after the conquest. لا هجرة بعد الفتح So Abbas becomes the final person that Allah honored to be a muhajir. And even this as we said is kind of three quarters of the way but still it's accepted from him because his niyyah was to make hijrah. And Allah bases things on uh, niyyah. Now there's a huge controversy amongst the scholars of the seerah. When did Al-Abbas accept Islam? This is one of the big controversies that the scholars of the seerah discuss in pages and pages. And it's an interesting question. There are many opinions. One opinion, which is very bizarre in my opinion, is that he accepted Islam even before uh, the Prophet's hijrah, i.e. in the Meccan phase. And this is bizarre to be honest and there's not a shred of evidence for this. The second opinion is that he accepted Islam right before Badr. And the evidence for this is that the Prophet remember at the Battle of Badr, he had said, do not kill three people. If you see them, don't kill them. Because they have been forced to come. Number one on the list was Al-Abbas. So from this, there is an opinion that he accepted Islam right before Badr. This is opinion number two. Opinion number three, he accepted Islam at Badr as a prisoner of war. Post Badr, I should say, not at Badr. Post Badr. So, Al-Abbas was taken a prisoner of war along with his sons and his nephews. Uh, and Al-Abbas had to ransom himself. And it is said that he accepted Islam at that point at the ransom. This is opinion number three. Opinion number four. He accepted Islam before the battle of Khaybar. And the evidence for this, if you remember, going back in your notes, that when the news falsely reached Mecca that the process had been defeated at Khaybar. What happened to Abbas? How did Abbas react to the false news? This is a false news. If you remember the story, go back to your notes that it was a tactic that one of the Muslims basically said that defeat has occurred and he intended the, the Quraysh to basically, it was a tactic if you remember. And when the news spread, Abbas became depressed and Abbas became extremely grieved until finally uh, this Sahabi visited him privately and said, Ya Abbas, this is actually the biggest victory the Muslims have ever had. And he shouted, Allahu Akbar. Right? So for him to say Allahu Akbar and to be happy that the Muslims have won at Khaybar shows what? That he's a Muslim. So this is opinion number four now, right? Opinion number five, that he converted right here and now, which is right now we're talking about. So these are five opinions. Okay? Now, uh, Allah knows best, but... Uh, so opinion number three, four, and five would say, all of them would agree that he remained in Mecca at the command of the Prophet as basically a spy, right? As an informant. That Al-Abbas was an informant at the behest of the Prophet And this is something that if you follow the other positions, you will say that is why he remained in Mecca, except for the fifth opinion. The fifth opinion would say he converted and he immigrated at that point in time. The fact of the matter is that 
the evidence is somewhat ambiguous. And you cannot say for certain when did Al-Abbas accept Islam. Uh, Ibn Abd al-Bar said that he accepted Islam right before Khaybar. Ibn Hajar argues that he accepted Islam right now, which is at this incident we're talking about. Ibn Kathir argues that he remained in Mecca at the command of the Prophet basically as a Muslim. So we have three great scholars, three great opinions. Allah knows best, in my humble opinion, one thing is for sure that we can say without a shadow of a doubt. And that is, after the battle of Badr, his heart opened to Islam. Whether he accepted or not is ambiguous. But up until Badr, he was hesitant. After Badr, he knows Islam is true. He might have accepted, and Allah knows best, maybe he did. But even if he didn't, he knew Islam to be true. And that is why he's helping the Prophet And that is why he's informing on the Quraysh, and that is why he was so happy at the conquest of uh, Khaybar. And if you go back to your notes on the Battle of Badr, which I'm sure all of you have memorized inside out and you know exactly what happened. What did the Prophet when the Prophet told Al-Abbas, what is your uh, ransom? And it was an astronomical figure. Abbas said, Ya Rasulullah, he didn't say Ya Rasulullah, he said, Ya Muhammad, do you want me to become impoverished and poor? You want me to go beg the people? I don't have this money. What did the Prophet say? Oh Abbas, what happened to the money that you buried at such and such a place the night before you left for Badr and you told Umm al-Fadl, your wife, that I'm worried if something happens to me uh, and I never come back so I'm going to hide the money here and there. And so what happened to that money? So Al-Abbas said, and how did you know Ya, uh, ya Muhammad? Because he's not saying Ya Rasulullah. How did you know? For Wallahi, nobody was there other than me and Umm al-Fadl. And I know Umm al-Fadl is not going to tell you. It's not possible. So he said, Allah Azza wa Jal told me. And then Al-Abbas said, Ashhadu annaka la Rasulullah. That there is no way you could have done this, right? Now, this phrase has been interpreted to mean an acceptance of Islam. And it is possible. It is possible. And Allah knows best. So we leave this vague, even though, Allahu alam, my heart, I mean, this is not an academic, my heart seems to, I feel comfortable saying that the battle of Badr opened Al-Abbas to Islam and he was a Muslim but he didn't declare it. And he declared it at the, right now this incident of meeting up with the Prophet and right before the conquest. This is when he publicly declares. But his heart is a heart of Islam. And he was a believer in Islam and that is why he helped the Prophet Also, by the way, there's a, a, a hadith that is not authentic. It's actually a very weak hadith in Mu'jam al-Kabir of al-Tabarani that the Prophet is reported to have said. It's not an authentic hadith, but there's no problem using weak hadith in history uh, in this manner. That the Prophet said to Al-Abbas, you are the last of the muhajirun just like I am the last of the mursaloon. You're the last muhajir just like I'm the last nabi. There's no Nabi after me, there's no Muhajir after you. And by the way, Al-Abbas was the, the only uncle, the only elder of the Banu Hashim to live after the Prophet's demise. He lived for another 20 years. He died in 32 uh, Hijrah in the Khilafah of Uthman. And the Sahaba respected Al-Abbas an immense amount. I mean, after all, he is the brother of Abdullah. After all, he is the uncle, the Am of the Prophet And once when somebody irritated Al-Abbas, the Prophet gave a khutbah and he said that, O Muhajirun and Ansar, verily the uncle of a man is like his father. Do not irritate my uncle. The uncle of a man is like his father. Al-Am Sinu Abi. The uncle is like the father. In the other hadith he said, the khala is like the mother. Right? So the uncle is like the father. So do not irritate me through Al-Abbas. And it is narrated that whenever Abu Bakr and Umar or any of the senior Sahaba, they saw Al-Abbas, they would get off of their camel, they would get off of their horse as a token of respect to Abbas and not ride uh, on top of him. And in the famous hadith of Bukhari, uh, when the Muslims were suffering the drought in the 18th year of the Hijrah, the famous year of the drought is called Am al-Maja'a. Uh, there was a drought and there was a plague in that year. When Umar ibn al-Khattab gathered all of the Sahaba and they went out to perform Salat al-Istisqa and the people are dying from thirst. Umar ibn al-Khattab finished the khutbah by saying, Oh Allah, we used to go through you. We used to go through Rasulullah to get to you. Inna kunna natawassalu ilayka bi 
And now we will do tawassul through the uncle of your prophet. And tawassul here means we will ask somebody to make dua. We will ask him to make dua. Qum ya Abbas, Stand up, O Abbas, and make dua for us. So this is a great honor when there are Badriyun, when there are all of the early immigrants and the converts are still alive. Who does the process, who does Umar choose to make dua for the entire community? Stand up, O Abbas, and make dua for us that Allah causes rain to fall. And Abbas lived a long life. He died after the age of 85 or so, and he had become blind towards the end of his life. Uh, and uh, he is described as being very handsome and very loud voiced. He had the loudest voice. And we will come to this in the Battle of Hunayn. When the people began to flee, the Prophet ﷺ said to Abbas, O oh Abbas, call them. And so Abbas would, uh, Abbas stood up on his uh, mount and he called all of them back. And it is said in the books of Sirah that Abbas had uh, a slave who would uh, be a shepherd for him. And when the slave had was grazing the flock, and it was three miles outside of Mecca. When he wanted him to come back, he would just call him. And his voice would go for three miles and the, the, the shepherd would come back. And of course, I mean, I'm going into a tangent here, but Wallahi Abbas and his, uh, of course, Abbas, um, so many things about him. The famous uh, nukta or the, the incident or the question that somebody asked Al-Abbas after the death of the Prophet Oh Abbas, a'anta akbaru am Rasulullah Sallallahu Who's bigger, meaning older? Anta akbar, am Rasulullah Who you're age-wise, right? So Al Abbas smiled and he said, Rasulullah akbar minni wa ana asannu minhu. The Prophet is bigger maqam than I am. Don't use this word, right? And I am more aged than him. I was born before him, right? Rasulullah akbar minni. Don't say anta akbar am Rasulullah. Rasulullah akbar minni. And look at the intelligence and the adab that Abbas has. That he says Rasulullah, which is his nephew, and Abbas was three years. Uh, older than the Prophet ﷺ. Uh, and uh, I mean again so much can be said but one of the biggest blessings that Allah gave Al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib was that one of the most prestigious and longest ruling dynasties of Islam is called the Abbasids from Abbas direct descendants right they ruled Islam from who are the history buffs who can tell me when did they rule Islam? Where are my students from my classes? They should know this. Huh? MashaAllah, really good. After the Umayyads and before the Ottomans, MashaAllah. This is, this, is, this is what we expected from Asif, MashaAllah. Perfect. <laughs> from, uh, from 750 CE up until the invasion of the Mongols, which is 1258, right? And then uh, when even the Mongols invaded and then the Mamluks defeated the Mongols, what did the Mamluks do? They got one of the nephews of the Khalifa, the Abbasid Khalifa, and they installed him as a puppet Khalifa. So there was a puppet Abbasid uh, Caliphate in Cairo. From Baghdad, they transferred one of the nephews of the... So he's still an Abbasid. And the Abbasids therefore ruled up until uh, Salim I, which is the, uh, the Ottoman guy in 1515 or so. So from 750 CE up until the 1500s, the descendants of Al-Abbas were at least nominal Khulafa. The direct descendants, and they're called the Abbasids. They were the Khulafa of Islam, Harun al-Rashid. All of these are direct descendants of Al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib. Uh, and that's why they're called the Abbasids. In any case, that was a whole tangent. Back to our story. So, Abbas accepts Islam at this auspicious time and he becomes the last of the Muhajirun. And Abbas then reaches the army and proceeds with them to uh, Mecca. Um, in today's entire uh, lesson is about conversions before the conquest because very important conversions take place. We have now two more conversions. Abbas is marching with the army. The army is coming close to Mecca and the news has now spread. You cannot stop the onslaught of 10,000 people and news spreading. The news has reached Mecca that the Prophet is coming but they don't know when. They don't know when because the caravans are going back and forth and of course the news is going to reach there. So uh, the Meccans were taken by surprise. However, two people out of panic and fear decided to exit Mecca and try to embrace before the Prophet conquered Mecca. And this is yet another two 
uh, famous conversion stories, uh, but they weren't muhajir. They didn't emigrate to Medina. They're simply converting outside of Mecca. And they actually convert around 20 kilometers outside of Mecca, which is basically one day's journey outside of Mecca. They're waiting for the Prophet outside of Mecca. And uh, these two people, the first of them was Abu Sufyan, not the famous one. This is always pe people get confused. Not Abu Sufyan ibn Harb, who is the father of Muawiyah. We're going to talk about him right after this, because he also converted the next conversion story. The first of them is Abu Sufyan ibn al-Harith ibn Abdul Muttalib. So he is the first cousin of the Prophet And his father al-Harith is the eldest son of Abdul Muttalib. And Harith died even before the Prophet was born most likely. Harith is the eldest son of Abdul Muttalib. And he was the only son that was there when Zamzam was discovered. And that was the time when Abdul Muttalib said what? Oh Allah, if you ever give me 10 sons, I will sacrifice one of them for you. He only had Al-Harith. This is Al-Harith. Well, this is the son of Al-Harith, right? So this is the first cousin whose name is also Abu Sufyan. Ibn Al-Harith Ibn Abdul Muttalib. And another cousin of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And uh, that is Abdullah Ibn Abi Umayyah Ibn Al-Mughira. Now, where is Abdul Muttalib here? So Abdullah Ibn Abi Al-Mughira, his mother is Atiqa. And who is Atiqa? Atiqa is the aunt of the Prophet which is the daughter of Abdul Muttalib, right? So they are both first cousins, and they are first cousins to the Prophet The one of them from the father's side, the other from the, well, the father's brother, and the other from the father's sister. Clear? Right? So the one from the father's brother, and the other from the father's sister. By the way, Atiqa, was she alive when Islam came or not? Yes, how do we know this? She saw the dream. Which battle? Badr, Badr. What happened to her, we don't know. And most likely she must have died in this time frame. When the conquest takes place, she's no longer mentioned. So most likely she died in this time frame. And whether she accepted Islam or not is uh, ikhtilaf amongst the uh, scholars. Nonetheless, this is Atika's son. This is Atika's son over here. And his name is Abdullah ibn Abi Umayyah ibn al-Mughira. Now, the both of these are first cousins, but they are also of the most open mockers of Islam, open enemies of Islam. And they had caused a lot of pain to the Prophet wasallam. As for uh, Abu Sufyan ibn al-Harith, Abu Sufyan was known for his poetry. And he composed many poems in the Meccan stage, mocking the message of Islam and ridiculing the Prophet and this is, in those days, this is the worst form of, you know, spreading PR campaigns, right? This is the worst type of slander. To write poetry against uh, the Prophet And as for Abdullah ibn Abi Umayyah, an incident had occurred in Mecca, in public, that Abdullah ibn Abi Umayyah uh, had challenged the Prophet in early Mecca, in public, in front of all of the leaders of the Quraysh, that O Muhammad your people have given you so many offers and you've refused all of them. You understand the offers, right? Your people have given you so many offers, you have refused all of them. And they have asked you for wealth from your God. As the Quran says, turn this mountain into gold, give us this, give us that. They have asked you from wealth for your God and you have not given us that. So, I swear by Allah, I will never believe in you until you climb up to the skies in front of me with a divine ladder. And then you bring down a book, a covenant. And this is, by the way, referenced in the Quran, right? This mocking is referenced in the Quran. This exact phrase is mentioned in the Quran, right? Right? Or you bring down the malaika, or we see this, we see that, right? So he says, go back up to Allah. Show us climbing up to Allah. Bring down the book. Bring down a treaty from Allah that you are, not a treaty, but uh, a covenant, a book from Allah. Show us the angels. Then he says, and even if you do so, I still don't think I'll believe in you. Means the height of arrogance. And he's doing this in front of the Nadi or the, 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 the parliament of the Quraysh. And there are other, you know, 
uh, incidents of these two as well. No doubt, can you imagine, these are cousins of the Prophet how we would have felt, right? Can you imagine, uh, these are cousins, and no doubt, pre-Islam, the cousins have camaraderie, brotherhood, he's grown up with them. He's grown up with them, they are his cousins, both of them, and now they are mocking him publicly in such a vulgar manner. And it also so happened that Abdullah, the second one, Abdullah, his father, don't get confused now, all of this is lineage and genealogy. His father is the father of Umm Salama, the mother of the believers. But the mothers are different. So they're half siblings, right? So Abdullah, the cousin of the Prophet, now he's the cousin through his mother. Correct? He's the cousin through his mother. His father married another lady, and that union brought produced Umm Salama. Umm Salama is the wife of the Prophet. Right? So, Abdullah goes to his sister. Now you follow him, we are interested. He goes to his sister, not to the Prophet And he begs her, Can you go shafa'ah to the Prophet I'm your brother after all, you know. He's the elder brother, and that's his cousin. And the two of them are cousins to the Prophet Can you go and intercede on our behalves in front of the Prophet So Umm Salama feels pity after all. They're brothers, this is his brother, it's her brother. He feels, she feels pity for him. And she enters into the tent of the Prophet And she says, Ya Rasulullah, so and so and so and so, your cousin and your cousin, يعني ibn ammik wa ibn ammatik, right? The, يعني your maternal cousin, your paternal cousin, so and so and so and so are here. Uh, which basically translates as, can you help them out? You know, can you do something for them? They're here now to express their uh, regret and remorse. The Prophet said, I have no need for any of them. I have no need for any of them. I don't need to see them. I don't want to see them. Now, pause here before we move on. That when people hear these types of incidents for the first time, they, it clashes with their perception of the Prophet They say, how could the Prophet not have wanted to see them? Wasn't he rahmata lil alameen? Wasn't he somebody who did what he did at Ta'if? Didn't he say in Mecca, idhabu fa'antum tulaqa? Didn't he do the Bedouin in this way? Didn't he? Didn't he? Didn't he? Right? So their perception of the Prophet seems to clash with specific incidents that we have, by the way, by now all of you know, you know from the seerah, that we find these types of sometimes harsh side as well. Right? But for those who are not accustomed to the seerah, they are shocked. Like, what do you mean? He said, I don't want to see them. Which is a very frank and blunt way of basically saying, I don't have any need for them. Quite literally, I don't have any need for them. You know, after all that they've done, I don't want to see them, basically. He doesn't even allow them an audience to come into his uh, presence. Now, the fact of the matter is that, and I've said this so many times before, that, لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنًا You have in the example of the Prophet ﷺ, the perfect methodology to follow. Yes, wallahi, it is true that he was rahmatan lil alameen. How can you not, when Allah says so? Yes, he forgave and he forgave and he forgave. But you cannot establish political rule by always turning the other cheek. You cannot forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive without once in a while showing harshness. And that is why any religion that preaches turn the other cheek, they can never live up to it as a society. No society can ever live with this methodology. You cannot, because people will take advantage of you. And that is why we see in the Prophet ﷺ, the general rule is mercy. The general rule is forgiveness. But there is also a fear that when you cross the line, you are not going to be forgiven. And the both of these people clearly crossed the uh, line. Also we notice from the seerah, and this is not new, I've said this before, that the Prophet treated people according to who they are. So the Bedouin is not treated like the senior Sahaba are treated. The Bedouin is not treated like the senior Sahaba are treated. The Bedouin is shown mercy. Whereas the senior Sahaba, a higher standard is raised. When Mu'adh recites a long prayer in Salah, the Prophet gets angry at him. Ya Mu'adh, fattanun ant? 
Are you going to cause fitna to the people? When Usama ibn Zayd kills the person uh, who said, La ilaha illallah, the Prophet is furious at him. And he kept on, He kept on repeating, What are you going to do with La ilaha on the day of judgment? Until Usama said, Wallahi, I wished I was a brand new Muslim out of the anger of the Prophet for me. I wished I had just accepted Islam. All of my blessings, I wish I would obliterate them for the forgiveness he would have shown me had I been a new Muslim. That's what he's trying to say, right? What is Usama saying on that day? We did this incident a few months ago, right? When he killed the person uh, and the Prophet kept on telling him, what will you do with La ilaha illallah? Did you open up his chest? Did you see why he accepted it? And what did Usama say? I had wished that I was a brand new Muslim. Meaning what? He would have been softer with me had I been a new Muslim. Because of who I was, he was so harsh with me. So, if this is the case, and it is the case, then we understand. These are cousins. They know better. They know better. How could they have done this to their own cousin? How could they have done this to somebody whom they grew up with? Loving, camaraderie, playing, respecting each other, as cousins always do. How could they have betrayed him when he was the most in need of them? So, yes, strictness should be demonstrated at this time. And he says to Umm Salama, La hajata li fihima. I have no need for them. Basically, tell them to go back. I don't even want to see them after all that they have done. And there's another uh, wisdom here as well. And that is that in this harshness, there is an imtihan for them. There is a test for them. This is the test of their real sincerity. If they're not sincere, if they're half sincere, what's going to happen when they hear the harshness? They will not just leave, but reject, become arrogant. Say, huh, okay, fine. You don't want us, we don't want you. But if they understand what is Islam and who is Rasulullah what's going to happen? They will insist, they will beg, they will plead, right? All you need to do is look at Adam and Iblis. Look at Adam and Iblis after Jannah. What happened? Iblis is arrogant and Adam says, This is sincerity and that is kibr. So this harshness has wisdom. And the wisdom is to test. And so the Prophet says, basically, I don't even want to see them. And it was most likely a test, or maybe he really did mean it. Allah knows best. We don't know what, what he intend to do. Either case, this was the correct decision, because as soon as Umm Salama comes out of the tent and tells them, sorry, no audience. Right? And obviously the Prophet had any volunteer bodyguards, he would not, nobody could just barge in obviously, especially the conquest of Mecca, I mean, that's understood. So the two of them are not even given an audience inside his tent, immediately Abu Sufyan, and he is the elder of the two, after all, his father is Al-Harid, the eldest brother, Abu Sufyan began raising his voice, began yelling and screaming, begging for an audience, knowing that the Prophet can hear him. And Abu Sufyan has with him one of his younger sons, his name is Ja'far ibn Abi Sufyan, uh, and he becomes a famous Sahabi later on. Uh, at the time, he's just a young child. And he raises Ja'far's hand, and he says, Ya Rasulullah, if you don't let me come in, then I swear by Allah, my son and I will depart from here, and go into the desert and die a miserable death. I'm not going back to Mecca basically, right? Me, my son and I will leave here. If you don't have mercy, then I'm just gonna die like this. So, uh, Ibn Ishaq says, uh, and other, um, uh, other uh, uh, books of Sirah say, فَرَقَّ رَسُولُ The Prophet felt softness for them. SubhanAllah, in the end of the day, they are his cousins. This is his cousin and the son of his cousin. This is his nephew. The young child is his nephew. He's probably never seen him in his life because he's a young child, but in the end of the day, it's blood. It's his nephew. And when he hears his cousin, and no doubt they have memories from the past, no doubt they have grown up together. When he hears his cousin begging and pleading, being so desperate that I'm not going to go back to Mecca. I, I don't have any food and water. I'm just going to go into the desert and I'm just going to die a miserable death, right? If you don't see me. This is like, you can call it emotional blackmail. But subhanAllah, it worked. Because our Prophet had a gentle heart. He had a soft heart. So he allowed the two of them to come in after this begging and pleading. And Abu Sufyan uh, had a poem prepared. 
And it's a beautiful, beautiful poem, which as usual, we simply have to gloss over. Wallahi, one of my biggest regrets of doing the seerah in English is these poems. Because the seerah is full of these profound poems that uh, we just have to gloss over. Uh, and frankly, even if we were doing it in Arabic, right, and I was to recite these poems to you, I would need a translator and you would need a translator. The Arabs I'm talking about. Because these poems, their balagha, their fasaha, their, uh, their ta'bir, their words that they use, is simply beyond modern Arabic. And no matter how good your, your modern Arabic is, unless you are an expert in that era's Arabic, which none of us really are, even I need a translator and you need a translator. But when you do unlock these poems, they're very beautiful. So he recited a one-page long poem. It is mentioned in Ibn Ishaq and other books. And in that poetry he has hadani hadin ghayru nafsi wa dallani ila allah man taradtu man taradtu kulla mutarradi which translates as a guide other than myself guided me to allah a guide meaning the prophet other than myself guided me to allah meaning the prophet muhammad a guide whom i myself repelled at every opportunity I kept on pushing him away, but he continued to guide me to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he said this long poetry, and this was a line in that poetry. When he came to this line, our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he, you know, hit him like, you know, the brotherly hit. He hit him in the chest, and he said, E wallahi, you repelled me every time you could. Meaning this is like the brotherly chastisement, you know? You did it every time you could, you are absolutely correct. You kept on, you know, uh, uh, you kept on pushing me away whenever you could. And subhanAllah, it shows us the Prophet no doubt, he, of course he's a human. He's hurt, his cousin has done this to him. He's hurt that, you know, he's been repelled in such a manner. So when... Uh, Abu Sufyan uh, uh, says this, so the Prophet you can, you can imagine it now comes out now, right? The grief that he felt. And he said, yes, wallahi, you repelled me every time you could repel me. And Abu Sufyan, this Abu Sufyan, not the famous one we're going to come to in a while, Abu Sufyan showed many brave uh, stances after this, and especially in the Battle of Hunayn, which takes place in a few months, in a few weeks actually, in the Battle of Hunayn, we will see the Iman of Abu Sufyan, this Abu Sufyan, the cousin of the Prophet we will see what he did and what he said, and how he chastised the Quraysh for fleeing. So Abu Sufyan clearly showed his uh, Iman. And the Prophet accepted their repentance, and the two of them then became Muslim. So this is three conversion stories. Now we have the fourth. Four conversion stories today. That is our episode for today before we uh, break for next week. Um, so they continue proceeding onwards. Now they are less than one day's distance to Mecca. And the Quraysh are expecting some attack, but they don't know exactly when. They don't know how far the army of the Prophet is. And the Prophet camps around 20 kilometers outside of Mecca in a place called Marra Dhahran. Marra Dhahran. And Marra Dhahran is the final stopping station. You will wake up in the morning and march into Mecca. So this is the final station. And the Prophet tells the Sahaba, we will camp here. And he tells them, go ahead and light your fires. Meaning, we're not scared. 10,000 people, what are they going to do? Now, Mecca probably has less than one-fifth, one-sixth of the inhabitants that used to be in it 15 years ago. Mecca is now almost desolate. The people have emigrated, the people have been killed. And the tribes and the allies of the Quraysh more than three quarters have accepted Islam. And the few that remain are not going to fight on their behalves. There is no question that khalas, that the table has turned. Alhamdulillah, Izzah belongs to Allah and His Messenger. And now the Prophet tells the Sahaba, go light your fires. No fear, no need to hide your quantity or anything. Go ahead and light your fires. Can you imagine 10,000 people lighting their fires at night? Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine as far as the eye can see? It is a lit or a set ablaze with the fire of the camps. And Al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib, the brand new convert, the Quraysh haven't yet discovered that he's converted. Al-Abbas feels in his heart sympathy for the Quraysh. After all, he was with them yesterday. And he begs the Prophet let me go and negotiate before you attack. Let me see if we can resolve this without an attack. So the Prophet gives him his own mule. 
his own mule. He gives him his own ride and he says, Bismillah, go and see what you can do. So in the middle of the night, in late at night, Al-Abbas goes to Quraysh, begging and pleading, wondering what is to be done. And he narrates in the first person, and this is recorded in its entirety in uh, Ibn Ishaq and other books, that he's narrating exactly what happened in the first person. That Al-Abbas said, that I said to myself, Oh, what an evil morning it is for the Quraysh. Yarhamkumullah. Oh, what an evil morning it is for the Quraysh if the Prophet enters Mecca by force and attacks Mecca before they come to him and submit. It shall be the destruction of the Quraysh for all eternity. Meaning humiliation. Meaning if the Prophet conquers the Quraysh in this manner with a bloody war, then that's it. There shall be no more Quraysh after this. And he's worried what is going to happen. And as he's walking in the distance, he sees three people coming in his direction. So he becomes quiet. He figures out who these three people are. And he, it's night and he's listening who these three people are. Turns out these are three of the senior leaders of the Quraysh. Abu Sufyan, the Abu Sufyan, not the cousin. Abu Sufyan ibn Harb ibn Umayyah. This is the Abu Sufyan, the father of Muawiyah. Abu Sufyan, along with Budayr ibn Warqa and Hakim ibn Hizam, all three are senior members of the Quraysh, and they have been on a nightly basis coming out to see where is the, where is the army of the Muslims. They're, they're scouts, coming and going, coming and going. And they're doing this, worried, when are they going to attack? And they come across and they see this entire plain lit with 10,000 fires and they're wondering what is happening because in their minds they can never imagine the Muslims are this large. They cannot see the Muslims being 10,000. So Abu Sufyan and Budayl began having a conversation. Who do you think these people are? It doesn't even occur to them as the Muslims. Budayl becomes happy and he says this must be the Khuza'a. They've heard of the war, they're coming to defend us. Complete opposite. Right? These are our side. This must be Khuza'ah. And Abu Sufyan responds, they neither have the guts nor the quantity to be this. And Abu Sufyan knows tribes better than Budayl does. They neither have the courage and guts to support us. They'll abandon us and they did. And even if they came, they don't have 10,000 people. This can't be them. And while they're discussing, Abbas calls out, Ya Abal Hamdala, and Hamdala was the eldest son of Abu Sufyan. Ya Abal Hamdala, and Abu Sufyan recognizes Abal Fadl, which is the kunya of Abu Abbas, uh, of Abbas, because they all go by kunyas, as you know. And of course, Fadl ibn Abbas is the older brother of Abdullah ibn Abbas. Fadl ibn Abbas is the older brother of Abdullah ibn Abbas. So Abu Sufyan recognizes the voice. He goes, Abu Fadl, what are you doing here? They still haven't figured out he's a convert. He has converted. They still don't know what's going on. Now, remember, in those days, people would travel for food. They would go hunting. They would get firewood. It's not, and if you go missing for a day or two, it's not the end of the world. So, uh, what are you doing here? So, Abbas says, Wayhak, woe to you. This is the army of Muhammad Sallallahu It's not Khuza'a, it's not your helpers. This is the army of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And if, he conquers you tomorrow, then know that you shall be executed. Now, I don't need to tell you who Abu Sufyan is. By now, we all understand who is Abu Sufyan. There is no leader that even competes with the seniority of Abu Sufyan. They've all died at Badr. All of his friends and colleagues, Badr and Uhud, they're all gone. The only senior leader that can claim to really represent all of Mecca is Abu Sufyan. And there is no way that, according to Al-Abbas, he will be allowed to live. After all that you've done, you will be executed. And if we enter Mecca tomorrow, your head will be the first that shall be executed. So Abu Sufyan says, what can I do? What do you advise me? And Abbas says, come with me. Come with me. And I shall ask the Prophet to forgive you, to protect you. I shall intercede. And so Abu Sufyan, not seeing any other option, he cannot see any option now, he's going to die. He sees 10,000 people in front of him. He agrees. 
and Al-Abbas puts him on his own camel, not his camel, his mule, and it's not his mule, whose mule is it? The Prophet's mule. Al-Abbas and Abu Sufyan, in the middle of the night, walk back into the army of 10,000 strong, and every time somebody stops them, who is there? Al-Abbas says, this is Al-Abbas on the mule of the Prophet Duldul. This is Al-Abbas. And I am, and having the, the mule of the Prophet is a sign of what? Protection. Not just protection, but trust. Like the Prophet must have given you for some expedition, so no questions asked. Right? No questions asked. Wandering directly into 10,000 strong, each one of whom would love to kill Abu Sufyan. But in front of him is Al-Abbas, that both of them are riding the most sacred animal that the Muslims know, that belongs to the Prophet So nobody dares to ask or stop or anything. And they get closer and closer and closer. And as they get closer, the seniority of the Sahaba rises until they pass by Umar ibn al-Khattab. They pass by Umar ibn al-Khattab. And Umar, and again it shows you their love for the Prophet They're guarding him, they're protecting him. And nobody can pass by except that everybody's wondering. It's whatever the time might be, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., we don't know what time it is, right? But whatever the time might be, this is not a time where people return on, on, on camels and mules. So, so Umar jumps up. Who is there? And he doesn't need to ask any questions. He recognizes from the eyes. Abu Sufyan, Adu Allah. He says, Alhamdulillah, Allah has given you to me without any covenant or treaty. It's a gift. Let's celebrate. Alhamdulillah, there is no... Meaning what? You're wandering in. You don't have any protection. This is the state of war. Alhamdulillah, Allah has blessed us. Abbas says, Oh Umar, he's under my protection. Now, pause. You remember two lessons ago, we talked about the concept of aman. And the Prophet said that all Muslims can give aman. All Muslims can give a man, even the lowest of them can give a man, uh, and children can give a man according to the majority of scholars, women and slaves, everybody can give a man. All Muslims can give personal a man, one on one, that so and so is under my protection. And the rest of the Muslims have to basically uh, listen and obey that. This is, of course, uh, in classical Islamic law. So Abbas says he's under my a man. So Umar is not going to let this go. He accompanies armed guard. You're not going to leave my sight, O oh Abu Sufyan. He accompanies him to the tent of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And uh, no matter what time of the night it is, this is Abu Sufyan, it's a major incident. Eventually, they are uh, granted the audience. And Umar, obviously, what do you think he's going to ask for? Execution. Right? Says, Ya Rasulullah, hadha adu Allah. This is the enemy of Allah. And Allah has given him to us without any treaty, without any covenant. You know, there's no, you didn't promise him anything. And he deserves this. And Abbas began arguing with him. Says, no, he is under my protection. I told him he can come here. And Umar insists, and Abbas insists. And the Prophet is silent. And then Abbas says, stop it, O Umar. Basically, it would be even more harsh than this. You can say in English, you can use even something more harsher than this. Be quiet type of stuff, you know? You understand what I'm saying here? Just stop it, O Umar. For wallahi, if he were from the Banu Adi, the Banu Adi is the tribe of Umar, you would never want to kill him. But because he's from the Banu Abdi Manaf, you're brave enough to do this. Now the Banu Abdi Manaf is the combination of the Banu uh, uh, Hashim and the Banu Umayyah, right? The Banu Abdi Manaf combines the Banu Hashim and the Banu uh, Umayyah. And so the Banu Umayyah and the Banu Hashim are kind of cousins, right? They're kind of cousins, unlike the Banu Adi that are very distant cousins. So, Abbas brings in the tribal card. And this clearly shows that he's a new Muslim. He's still thinking somewhat in those lines, right? Oh, Umar, if he was from your tribe, you wouldn't want to kill him. At this, Umar stops completely because that's crossing the line. And he says, careful, ya Abbas. And wallahi, listen to this statement. Wallahi, listen to this statement. This is Umar ibn al-Khattab. Fawallahi, your acceptance of Islam, the day that you accepted it, was more beloved to me than my own father Khattab having accepted Islam had he been alive. SubhanAllah.
Had my own father accepted Islam, it would not have been as joyful to me as you accepting Islam only because the Prophet was happier at your Islam than he would have been happier at the Islam of my father. SubhanAllah, this is what you call love. And this is Umar saying this, Wallahi, it reminds you exactly of what Abu Bakr said. Wallahi, it reminds you exactly what Abu Bakr will say tomorrow when Mecca is actually conquered. And he brings his father Ibn Abi Qahafa. And eventually he accepts Islam. And Abu Bakr begins to cry and he says, Ya Rasulullah, I would give anything to see Abu Talib here and him accepting Islam at your hands, rather than my own father. Subhanallah. This is what you call Hubbur Rasul Sallallahu That Umar wanted to execute Abu Sufyan. Then when Abbas throws the tribal card, then he shows him, no, what are you talking about? Your Islam is more beloved to me than my own father had he been alive, simply because it brought more joy to the Prophet How dare you play the tribal card on me? And this clearly shows us the Iman of Umar ibn al-Khattab When the Prophet saw these tensions you know, rise up and whatnot and flare, he said, let's basically call it an evening, O oh Abbas, take Abu Sufyan to your tent, bring him to me tomorrow morning. Take him to your tent, he's not going to go home now, and bring him to me tomorrow morning. And uh, Abbas took Abu Sufyan to his tent, and they spent the entire night going back and forth. Abu Sufyan and Abbas, Abbas is trying to convert him, Abu Sufyan is hesitant and not uh, you know, uh, willing to accept, until finally the next morning, Abbas brings Abu Sufyan to the Prophet wasallam, and the Prophet says that, Ya Abu Sufyan, isn't it time for you to acknowledge Allah ilaha illallah? Isn't it time? Come on, how long are you going to deny this? And subhanAllah, what does Abu Sufyan say? Abu Sufyan says, Fidaka abi wa ummi. May my mother and father be given in ransom for you. Ma altafaka, ma akramaka, ma awsalaka. How gentle are you? How merciful are you? How fulfilling are you to the ties of kinship? Meaning, I would never have done what you're doing to me. I would never have done this. For you to allow me to live and treat me in this manner and now call me to Islam. Abu Sufyan says, Fidaka abi wa ummi. May my mother, and this is the highest, I've, done, I've said this before, but if you do, you know, for those who forgot, this is the highest praise that you can give in Arabic, because anybody can sacrifice yourself. When you're willing to sacrifice your mother and father for something, then you're sacrificing. And Abu Sufyan as a mushrik, is so overwhelmed at the kindness of Rasulullah he says, Fidaka Abi wa Ummi. Ma altafakak. How, how gentle and sweet are you? Ma arhamakak. Ma awsalak. How, and, and here means how much are you fulfilling the ties uh, with me? Then he says that, Amma hadha, as for this shahada, Allah ilaha illallah, had there been any other gods besides Allah, I would have seen them help me by now. Subhanallah. This is amazing. Had there been other gods besides Allah, by now we would have won something. Right? For you to be in your place and for me to be in mine clearly shows my gods don't exist, basically. Right? So, Abu Su now what does this show us, by the way? Wallahi, it's really amazing that deep down inside, many of these people genuinely believed in idolatry. And I keep on bringing this up, especially to our younger Muslim brothers and sisters who literally think naively, let me just talk to somebody five minutes and they'll be accept Islam instantaneously. Here we have the leaders of the Quraysh seeing the Prophet ﷺ, interacting with him for 23 years and they still believe that Allah and Al-Uzza are gods besides Allah. Think about that. It's very difficult to change your theology that you have been raised in. It's very difficult to abandon the culture that you consider dear. And Abu Sufyan is now finally the light bulb is clicking. After 22 years basically, he is saying, you know, if my gods really were true, then I wouldn't be here right now. Which means what? At Badr, at Uhud, at Ahzab, he genuinely believes in his gods. It was Abu Sufyan at the battle of Uhud, what did he say? Didn't he say that? And this means he believed it. And Umar responded, Allahu Akbar. Now look, 
Where is Hubal? Where is Umar and where is Abu Sufyan? Look at the Qadr of Allah, how things change, subhanAllah. So Abu Sufyan says, you know, I agree with you now. There should be no La ilaha illallah. So then the Prophet says, Wayhaka Aba Sufyan, Allah Rasulullah. Woe to you. Isn't it time you testify that I am Rasulullah? Okay, you testify La Hilal, now testify Mahmud Rasulullah. And he says the same phrase, Fidaka Abi wa Ummi ya Rasulullah. Fidaka Abi wa Ummi, may my mother and father be given as ransom. How merciful you are, how kind you are, how generous you are. As for this matter, Mazada fil qalbi min hushay. I'm still hesitant. So think about this now, huh? I agree, La ilaha illallah. As for Muhammad Rasulullah, I'm not 100% sure. Abbas loses it. You can imagine with all, I mean, they must have had a long discussion, short night's sleep. You can imagine, right? Abbas is very angry now. And he says, Ya Abba Sufyan, either accept or else you're going to get killed tomorrow. One of the two now. Now notice, this is not the process I'm speaking. He, because in Islam, we don't threaten people like this, right? But this is a new Muslim. And this is Abu Sufyan's friend, right? He's saying, come on Abu Sufyan, you have no choice now. I did all that I could, now it's your turn, basically. You can imagine, right? I did all of this, now you're in front of the Prophet you're gonna have to. And so, with reluctance, Abu Sufyan said the Shahada. Subhanallah, Subhanallah, what a story, what a story. After so many battles and years and incidents, after all the torture, after all the threats, after this and that, now, right before entering Mecca, the greatest chieftain of the Quraysh alive, with difficulty and reluctance, but Islam is Islam, and he accepts it. And wallahi, brothers and sisters, just think about the perfect setup that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had planned for this incident to occur. We could never have brought about this, this whole setup. If we had spent the entire money in the world, we could not have brought about this perfect, perfect, perfect setup. Wallahi, down to the minute detail. Who is Abbas? Where is he at the point in time? Who meets him? What time? Everything is absolutely perfect, right? Had any other Sahabi seen Abu Sufyan, he would have killed him. Or Abu Sufyan would not have trusted him. Abbas happens to be on the mule of the Prophet right? Wandering straight through the camps on the mule of the Prophet with the disguise of Abu Sufyan, you know, covered up, uh, you know, in the, 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 the shawl to, to protect him. Subhanallah, wallahi, think about this, right? Truly, this is Allah's aid coming. There is no way you can set this thing up. When Allah wants something, He says, Kun fayakun. And so eventually after all of these years, Abu Sufyan finally accepts Islam. And of course this also shows us that no doubt it is haram to threaten somebody to accept Islam. And the Prophet did not do it. But Abbas is kind of being a little bit eager. And it shows us that if somebody half-heartedly accepts Islam, let it, okay. Some of us have a very uh, different idea. We say, no, no, you must accept Islam fully from the heart. Well, you see, the fact of the matter is we believe Islam to be true. And therefore, if somebody is half-hearted, we will tell, okay, Bismillah, accept. And when they accept, we are certain that Islam will win them over. Because we're confident Islam is true. And this is exactly what happened with Abu Sufyan. That he's not quite fully convinced right now. But eventually, he will be convinced. And this is our trust in Islam. That yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. And of course, we talked about Abbas starting the Abbasid dynasty. Well, Abu Sufyan is from the Banu Umayyah. Abu Sufyan starts the Umayyah dynasty. Here we have two converts, Abbas and Abu Sufyan, speaking with one another. Look at the Qadr of Allah. Little do they realize that between the two of them, they shall rule Islam for over 1,000 years. Little do they realize when they're having this conversation in the tent throughout the entire night that my descendants and your descendants put together, we shall rule the bulk of Islam for over almost a thousand years. SubhanAllah. Look at the Qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, one final point here and that is that. Uh, so when, when, um, uh, when Abu Sufyan converted, Abbas said, Ya Rasulullah, you know that Abu Sufyan is a man of pride. Give him something to make him feel proud. Give him a gift to make him feel proud. 
And so the Prophet said that famous statement that uh, we are entering Mecca tomorrow. So, uh, مَنْ دَخَلَ الْحَرَمَ فَهُوَ آمِنْ وَمَنْ دَخَلَ بَيْتَ فَهُوَ آمِنْ وَمَنْ دَخَلَ بَيْتَ أَبِي سُفْيَانَ فَهُوَ آمِنْ We are going to enter Mecca tomorrow. Whoever is in the haram shall be safe. We are not going to touch him. Whoever is in his own house shall be safe. And whoever is in the house of Abu Sufyan shall be safe. So, this also shows us that you must humor people according to their mizaj, according to their backgrounds. Abu Sufyan is a man of pride. He's a leader. He doesn't want to be treated like everybody else. So, the Prophet gives him an honor that your house is the only public house, basically. Your house will be, well, there might have been one or two more. We'll get to that next lesson. But the first public house mentioned, whoever enters the house of Abu Sufyan, he is protected. We're not going to harm him. Abu Sufyan's house becomes uh, a, a sacred place for us not to harm anybody. And the Prophet told Abbas that take Abu Sufyan to such and such a place at the neck of the valley and let him see all of the army as it goes through in its march to Mecca. And so Abbas took Abu Sufyan to the top of the valley and all of the army is going to pass through as they enter Mecca. And Abu Sufyan was amazed as far as the eye can see. Convoys and cavalry and, uh, and, and, and people are coming in. And assignments and groups. And each group has a different banner. And he's asking, who is this banner? And Abbas says, this is the tribe of Sulaim. Who is this banner? And Abbas says, this is the tribe of Muzayna. Who is this banner? And Abbas keeps on saying, because these are all converts. And Abu Sufyan cannot understand yet that Islam combines all of these tribes. And he was never expecting all of these tribes to come under the banner. And he kept on saying, how can we fight against the Muzayna? How can we fight against the Sulaim? They're each 700, 1,000, what not. Then, right at the very end, Ibn Ishaq says, there came Al-Khadra. And Al-Khadra uh, the, is the, uh, it's called the convoy of the Prophet And it was given the name Al-Khadra. And Ibn, uh, Ibn Ishaq says, you could see nothing other than the brightness of the armors. This is the prophecies and the final contingent coming. And all of the Muhajirun, all of the Ansar, and Abu Sufyan is amazed and he said, Who is this convoy? And Abbas said, Hada Rasulullah Ansar. This is the process of the Muhajirun, the Ansar. And Abu Sufyan says, We have no manner of opposing all of them. O oh, Abbas, the kingdom of your nephew has become very great. Mulku. Ibn Ammik, the kingdom of your nephew has become very great. And Al-Abbas says, Wayhak, it is not a kingdom, it is prophethood. It is Nubuwa that has brought him this. And Abu Sufyan says, Fadaka idan, in the, let it be Nubuwa then. Meaning, okay, if that's what you say it is, that is what it is. Subhanallah, what a melodramatic sight. Imagine if you will, imagine now. 10,000 Sahaba marching in. And here is the leader of the Quraysh witnessing all of this. Three years ago, there were 10,000 outside the gates of Medina. Three years ago, Arabia had combined to eliminate Islam. And now, look at the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. From where to where? Yesterday, our Prophet is expelled from Mecca. And he is fleeing for his life. He only has Abu Bakr after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He only has Abu Bakr. They have to hide in a cave. And they're fleeing for their lives. For three days, they hide in that cave. And now, subhanAllah, less than eight years have gone by. And our Prophet is at the head of an army, 10,000 strong. And the Quraysh, where are the Quraysh? Where is the Izzah, the Batr, and the Riyah, and the Kibriyah of the Quraysh. Only Allah Azza wa Jal walillahi al-Izzatu jami'a. And inshaAllah we will continue uh, where we left off from. Uh, not next week, uh, we can take a break next week. InshaAllah we'll continue uh, two weeks from now with uh, the conquest of Mecca. Are there any quick questions about today's lesson before we uh, conclude? Yes. So the question is, can you do jama uh, before you begin the travel? Um, if you have <clears throat> no easy alternative, so you're going to be in the plane from uh, 3 p.m. to 9 p.m., let's say, or 6 p.m., whatever, and you're going to miss the time for asr, uh, and it's going to be inside the plane, 
in this case, in my humble opinion, it is allowed to do jama' but not qasr. You may do jama' very exceptional circumstance, but this jama' has nothing to do with the safar. This jama' is allowed for a strong haja. And you may only do jama' of dhuhr and asr or of maghrib and isha. You cannot do jama' of asr and maghrib. Nor can you do jama' of fajr and dhuhr, right? So jama' which is combination is allowed in extremely extenuating circumstances. Once in a very, very blue moon for a major event or a traveling is a type that you're not going to pray standing up or whatnot. That's all you may do. Jama'. Uh, doctors have to have surgery to perform and you cannot leave for even five minutes. You may do jama'. You know, uh, and you know what's going to happen. You may do jama'. But you cannot do qasr. Because qasr has to be done during traveling. Okay.